Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and joining me on today's show is Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Investing Team. Today, we're talking about the self-inflicted debacle OnlyFans got itself into and what this says about the future of the creator economy, how Reese Witherspoon and the Blackstone Group are disrupting the new media industry, and our thoughts on Virgin Orbit going public via SPAC. So Anne-Marie, last time I was speaking to you, you were stranded in New York thanks to a hurricane. Have you managed to get back to Ireland yet? And also, I didn't know New York had hurricanes in August. Yeah, it was. I think it was the first hurricane to hit New York since Hurricane Sandy. So it's like a very much like once every kind of five years thing. Yeah. Um, And it wasn't too bad because it degraded into a tropical storm as it hit the city. Okay. It just, it rained the most in a single hour that it had ever rained in New York City. Wow. So all of the subway stations immediately flooded. Why so, was it Hurricane yeah. Henry or Hurricane Henri? Henri, very Henry. fancy, very French. Which I think is why a lot of Americans didn't take it seriously. Like, <laughs> we're not going to take a hurricane named Henri seriously. Irish people have a have a bad relationship with the name Henri. Yeah, I'll tell you some other time. No handball incident there. Um, <laughs> let's move on before we get too bitter about it. Um, so the first story I want to come to today concerns a company that we've definitely never talked about in this podcast before, but it's been making headlines across the world over the past week or so for all the wrong reasons. Just before we get into this story, I want to point out that if any of our listeners have sensitive ears in the vicinity, they might want to skip past this story, just given the nature of its content. So OnlyFans, a platform where content creators can charge their followers a subscription free to access exclusive content, announced last week that it would be banning sexually explicit images and videos from its site. This prompted a massive backlash from both content creators and its community of users, who claimed that the service was abandoning the sex workers that had made it so popular in the first place. OnlyFans is, is quite an interesting company, though it's still private. It has more than 130 million users, 2 million content creators, and reported $150 million in free fl- cash flow last year. It has rapidly outpaced competitors in its industry, most notably Patreon. But a lot of this growth was apparently driven by the high amount of sexually explicit content on the site. The reasons for this ban are a little unclear. OnlyFans management seemed to blame payment processes like Bank of New York Mellon and MasterCard. But a lot, lot of commentators also suggested that the decision rested with concerns over the ability to secure fresh investment in the company. In any case, the management reversed the decision a couple of days ago, but the reputational damage amongst its community of creators seems to have been done. Rory, I know you've been doing a lot of reading on this. What do you make of all this? Have you ever seen something like this happen before? Yeah, well, as you said, it's not an industry we usually ever talk about, mostly because I don't think there's many public businesses to discuss. I think there is actually one strip club that is uh, publicly listed, or there was a couple of years ago anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but this has um, most certainly been the story of the week. And and what was kind of interesting was, like, as you said, this is a pretty kind of standard policy across most social media sites. And of course, OnlyFans wasn't actually created as a site for adult content. And it's not only adult content that's on there, but of course... Yeah that content had become kind of the biggest draw for users, and certainly in the kind of 
in the zeitgeist, OnlyFans was a kind of adult content platform. So this announcement kind of came like, uh, you know, well, what are they going to do? It'd be like, you know, it'd be like TikTok banning dance videos or Facebook banning fake news. You know, what's the point of this company <laughs> if they're not going to have adult content on it? And, you know, you know, if you're buying and also like if you're going to ban this, you know, is this company even viable anymore? And comparisons were yeah. obviously made to Tumblr, the, the microblogging site that Yahoo once paid a billion dollars for had a similar change in policy back in 2018 and now has essentially kind of vanished into complete obscurity. So yeah, like I said, the question was, why are they doing this? And the CEO, Tim Stokely, came out and he basically put all the blame on the banks. Uh, he did an interview with the Financial Times. He's saying that those three banks in particular that had been actively trying to shut down their corporate accounts and blocking their transactions to content creators. Now, we don't actually know just yet what truth is behind that. We know there has been issues in the past with companies like Visa and MasterCard. They've brought in policies that curtailed payments towards the industry in general. So yeah. um, one of the bigger tube sites, which I'm sure everyone has heard of, uh, had to make big changes just last year. Now, there's been suggestions that OnlyFans, like you said, were having problem raising capital because of the type of content that was on their platform. And according to a report by Axios, uh, who managed to actually get hold of the company's pitch deck, OnlyFans began looking for investors in the spring and were basically immediately shut out of a lot of the big firms. They kind of really? re refused wow. to even do any due diligence. Those big investors basically cited reputational risk. Yeah. And this was a big problem for the founders who were looking. They were kind of trying to figure out, when are we ever going to get out of this? Where are we going to get an exit event to kind of make some money off this company? Um, and they were just essentially being uh, completely stonewalled. So look, there's a lot of speculation. We don't actually know the full story, but you know, according to the financials that Axios posted, you know, any other company that was growing like this would have absolutely no problem raising capital. Their gross merchandise volume for 2020 was 2.2 billion. That was expected to go up to 5.9 billion this year. It was expected to go up to 12.5 billion in 2022. And that would have translated into net revenues of somewhere around 2.5 billion, which would certainly have made this, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah. Anyway, as as I said, the announcement was not taken well by OnlyFans creators. They believed that they were the reason behind the company's success. And, and you know, the company didn't necessarily reverse this decision yesterday. Actually, it used the term suspended. Okay. Uh, so we don't know exactly what the future holds. But, you know, this, so what I find interesting about this story is it's not the first time that we've seen either payments companies or the platforms themselves make these policy changes that impact content creators. So in 2010, for example, PayPal was, PayPal banned donations to WikiLeaks, which caused quite a stir. And then over the years, there have been a number of other groups that have complained that YouTube, for example, has sought to demonetize their content. Mm. And just hours ago, as I was researching the story, we heard that TikTok is set to ban accounts that discuss cryptocurrency. So this is, I think, an example of a kind of ongoing misalignment where platforms are increasingly wary of the kind of content that is shared by its content creators. And so these creators are kind of now moving towards, you know, this idea of decentralizing themselves off these platforms. And decentralization has been an ongoing discussion for many years now. It's been the driving factor behind the cryptocurrency movement. So for content creators, you know, decentralization would be ensuring that they're not tied to one particular platform, you know, that they control the relationships that they have built up with their own fan bases over, over and a lot of work has gone into this. Whether you agree with these, what these people do or not, you know, yeah. um, they've put an awful lot of time and energy to build up these fan bases. And these tech companies are essentially able to kind of just completely deplatform them at their whim. So I think it's bringing up quite a lot of interesting kind of conversations about what rights do content creators have in this digital space. And you kind of have to wonder how long it's going to be before we start seeing kind of platforms spring up that are designed to bypass 
these old tech companies, these old financial infrastructure firms. And I, like I said, like it's not happening already. It, it is happening in some of the more kind of out there edges of the internet. But how long before we start seeing these things start entering into the mainstream? Yeah, well, that that was one of the first things that struck me that about this whole story was that if only fans were going to ban this type of content, surely a dozen other platforms will spring up straight away that will you know latch on to the, the growth that fueled OnlyFans at this point. Yeah, I mean, there, and there already was competitors to OnlyFans who were jumping on this opportunity, instantly coming in and saying, we're, you're not welcome on OnlyFans, you're welcome on our platform. Yeah. But of course, that's very harmful to the creators. You know, they have to, they can't kind of bring their fan base with them. So mm-hmm. it's just a very kind of interesting story. It was one of those weird ones where it was kind of, was it a storm in a teacup? Because, it, you know, they changed or reversed their position very quickly. But I think it's just another kind of like a sea change in this kind of creator economy. And I'm, yeah. just, I'm, I'm interested to see where it's going to end up coming going from here. We often talk about, you know, obviously OnlyFans is a private company. With public companies, we often talk about, you know, the effect of the scrutiny of the market and investors has on, you know, decisions they make and directions they go. I suppose this is one of the first times on this podcast anyway, we've talked about a private company and the influence things like VCs and, and big investment firms have on it. What, what does it say about that influence that they can kind of completely change a company's policy you know based on whether they give them money or not well i mean it's it's not actually the first time we've talked about a public company because of course tiktok we are constantly kind of talking about the new rules the new policy changes that are coming into tiktok and the impact that that company has by being located or 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 headquartered essentially in in china so it's 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 not always public companies that have to face this kind of scrutiny and of course at the end of the day money talks and if the big investors aren't interested in you companies will make changes to ensure that they are at the, you know, at whether it, it harms or, or or hurts their their content creators, the people who essentially make the platform viable in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on. So and the next story I want to talk about is actually a very interesting story that completely flew under my radar anyway. Anne-Marie, you mentioned to me earlier this week that an unnamed media group backed by Blackstone, which is one of the largest investment companies in the US, has bought a majority stake in Hello Sunshine for a reported $900 million. Hello Sunshine is a media company founded by actress Reese Witherspoon. And interestingly, the unnamed company that's bought the majority stake is led by Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, both of whom are former Disney execs. Anne-Marie, we've spoken before about the media industry and how you believe it's fragmenting and kind of maybe coalescing again around these standalone streaming services. What do you make of this latest move? I think this is kind of something that we discussed when MGM was purchased by Amazon. I talked about how these streaming services are now very focused on production, and we were going to kind of see a consolidation of the type of films that were going to be made. And I kind of made the prediction that I think all the films of the future are either going to be like massive IP-fueled blockbusters that these streaming services know they can pour a bunch of money into and definitely gain a profit from, or they'll be very small independent films, which will have to be fully produced and then sold as a completed product to these streaming services after the fact. And I think that this new company is an attempt to strengthen the position of independent filmmakers by basically squishing a bunch of independent production companies together and having them share resources and connections and then give them leverage when they're attempting to negotiate with streaming services to maximize their profits. So just a little bit of background on the company itself. Hello Sunshine was founded by Reese Witherspoon in 2012. 
and kind of very famously was a product of the fact that she was very frustrated with the type of roles that she was being offered. So she made a decision that she was going to start purchasing the rights to female-centered stories. And she started that by gaining the adaption rights to Gone Girl, which went on to yeah. become a incredible blockbuster success. It was a critical success. And the way that she one, the rights to adapt it is that she went to Gillian Flynn, who was the author before anybody else approached her. She had read the book via a manuscript before it was published. And she went to her and said that she wanted to adapt it and that she would star in it. And by using her star power, she then took the book around to a bunch of studios and was able to get into the room, which an author wouldn't normally be able to. And she was able to sell the book for a tremendous amount of money. When Fox ended up buying the production, it was like one of the most expensive acquisitions of a book adaption right that they had ever agreed to purchase. And then from there, she's gone on to produce a number of very successful projects such as Wild and then the TV shows Big Little Lies, Little Fires Everywhere, and then they have a film coming out this year where the Crawdads sing, which is very hotly anticipated because that book was like the number one bestseller on the New York Times for all of last year. So it's an indie it's an indie media house, but you know, they they've got some big blockbusters in there. Yeah, and they have a really strong kind of reputation of success. And so I think this acquisition is smart if you're trying to kind of corner the independent market, but it's in addition to two other production companies that they already have an established relationship with, which are with the Westbrook Company, which is founded by Will Smith, and then the Imagine Entertainment Group, which is co-founded by Ron Howard, the very famous director. Um, And so essentially what the two Disney executives are trying to do, Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, who both were instrumental in Disney's negotiation and acquisition of Lucasfilms, Marvel Entertainment, and 21st Century Fox, is they're going to bring all of these independent companies together in an attempt to strengthen their negotiations when they go to streaming services to sell the productions. And the reason they can kind of get away with this is as all of the production and streaming rights have siloed together, it's kind of sometimes left streaming companies in direct competition with producers and with actors. To quote the Washington Post, as major studios direct movies and shows to their own streaming platforms, that can sometimes put them in conflict with actors and producers who want to ensure that the value of their work is being maximized. And we're seeing this right now with, say, Scarlett Johansson and Emma Stone suing Disney yeah. for in violation of their contracts because the movies went to streaming platforms first. They didn't go to the box office. The actresses undoubtedly had clauses in their contracts which guaranteed them percentages of box office returns. And now they're being denied probably tens of millions of dollars. And so this is really going to place more power in the hands of producers and actors. And, and to quote Mr. Mayer, that's where a scaled independent entity like ours can really have an advantage in the marketplace. They're essentially taking advantage of the fact that the streaming wars are heating up, that all of these streaming companies are competing together, and they're going to basically start bidding wars. They're going to produce really good independent content, and then they're going to be able to walk it in front of Netflix and Amazon and Apple and bid up the prices on all these projects and probably gain a greater return than they would if the production companies were operating independently. And and that kind of answers my next question. So obviously Blackstone, who are who are backing this unnamed media group, have a lot of faith or, or a lot of belief that there's a lot of money to be made here, especially if they're pumping so much, hundreds of millions of dollars into it. Is their opportunity creating these bidding wars and, and bumping up the price of this kind of intellectual property? 
Definitely. I, I think it's a play for IP. I think that they've identified, you know, I think um, IP like data has become kind of like the new gold or the new oil where everyone is realizing, oh my gosh, this is worth a lot of money when it exists on a streaming platform because it could in theory make money for much longer than it could than if yeah. it just traditionally reached released in cinemas and then was sold as DVDs. People are like, oh, the longevity of this has increased substantially. And so, I yeah, I think that this is like the new wave for investors is how do we control IP? How do we own its copyright? How do we maximize it? How do we license it? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and what, what do you think the impact of this will be then on streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime? Are they going to see themselves squeezed if, if more and more companies are, are production companies are joining together in this way? I think it's going to go one of two ways. We're either going to see more kind of big conglomerates like Blackstone acquiring up small IP collections, or we're going to see more and more smaller um, production companies be looked at by Netflix and Amazon to try and break down these these silos. They, you know, they own big IP. How do they, you know, create development within? their own studios how can they you know go and find the next kind of blacklist project which there's very famously in hollywood a list of undeveloped film projects called the blacklist it's released every year and studios very famously look on the blacklist to figure out what small independent film from some unknown writer can we make and it might you know be a big surprise hit at the box office i i would be interested to see if maybe netflix begins like a developmental program where they begin acquiring writers very early in their careers and spending money there because there's not really much else to do in terms of like traditional IP anymore. Most of the big studios have been bought up. Most of the big content has already been negotiated and signed into contracts for the next five or 10 years. Now we got to create new IP. We have to create new characters. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a real sea change in the industry. I was just thinking that, you know, this the signs of this kind of these battles over intellectual property was shown to us a while ago when Peacock bought The Office back off Netflix. And, you know, when you think of The Office, I think I saw some stat that it was still one of the most streamed series on Netflix. So however long it's it's finished, it shows that the long tail of it really, really lasts. So let's move on and just talk about some of the things that are going on in my Wall Street at the moment. So we're coming towards the end of another month, which means that you've loads to catch up on the Stock of the Month report, the Stock of the Month podcast, and our brand new stock pick. Remember, you can only find all of this great content in the My Wall Street app, so make sure to start your free trial by hitting the link in the notes for today's show. I also want to mention that we've launched a new look blog too. Here, you can find loads of great articles about the latest events in the US stock market, as well as analysis on companies both in and outside of our market-beating shortlist. To check it out, just follow the links in the notes for today's show or simply google my wall street blog mailbag so this week's mailbag is actually a very interesting one a couple of weeks ago on stock club rory we talked about the new space race and how the main players in the industry including virgin galactic spacex and blue origin all competed against each other earlier this week a new player entered the game at least for investors like us virgin orbit is part of the wider virgin brand that includes virgin galactic and announced earlier this week that it's set to go public via a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC to you and me whereas virgin galactic deals primarily with the industry of space tourism virgin orbit is more focused on space haulage we were inundated with questions asking us about our thoughts on virgin orbit so rory seeing as you were already on CNBC talking about the new space race. I'm going to give this to you first. What are your thoughts? Yeah, a strange announcement. It's it's actually a shame we don't have Emmett on at the, uh, for this podcast because, of course, he was very early in on the Virgin Galactic um, spectacle yeah. that happened back in 2019 and generated very impressive returns on that ever since. I myself was always a little bit hesitant on Virgin Galactic and part of that was because I wasn't as bullish on the idea of space tourism 
I was kind of more interested in this kind of idea of space infrastructure. Yeah. Now, you can go back and actually read a great article by a guy called Charles Duhigg. It's called The Pied Piper of SPACs. Um, it was published in The New Yorker three or four months ago. I can't remember exactly. But that delves into the history of that merger between Virgin Galactic and Shamath Palahabatiya's SPAC. It was really the kind of the original SPAC, wasn't it? The first big one that, uh, yeah. that kind of came to market and obviously considering Branson and, and, and the kind of subject matter, it got a huge amount of media attention. Funnily enough, Branson had never heard of a SPAC when the deal was first proposed. And it was kind of a sort of a marriage of convenience because Virgin at the time wanted to distance itself from the Saudi sovereign fund. And I don't really think he intended the company to be public so early. Since then, the stock though has been, I mean, it's been highly volatile, but you know, still trades way above its opening price. And Pretty good business, for a company with no revenue. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good for a company. Now, I mean, it's it's a company that's had its challenges, of course, and um, but of course they managed their first flight back in July. It's now opened up the reservation list again. But what what you find out with though, when looking back on the history of that merger, was that Shamath was very keen to take this orbit side of the business into the SPAC as well, and Branson very much didn't want that to happen. He wanted to keep them separate, and you know, since then, I don't think. I think Branson and Shamath have not particularly endeared themselves to investors hmm. by selling a lot of stock over the last few months. And it's it's rather telling that they didn't team up again. This he's not going he's not Branson and Shamath aren't teaming up on this particular SPAC, even though Shamath is definitely still in the SPAC business. But as you said, it's not the space tourism business. This is the haulage business, which is essentially bringing stuff into space for other companies. And I know Boeing are involved and the combined company is going to be valued at about $3.2 billion. They're going to have half a billion dollars in cash. They have, I think it would be, I'd be understating if I said they had very ambitious revenue projections. Yeah. Um, the, Go on, give they, them to us, give them to us. <laughs> they're estimating 15 million in revenue this year. That's to grow to over 2 billion by 2026. That's 166%. Cagr over five years in revenue growth. Worth keeping in mind that I think the it's it's Google were the fastest company to ever make the billion dollar run rate. It took them eight years just to get one billion. So amateurs. this company reckons that yeah, <laughs> total amateurs over there. Uh, Google, um, they reckon that's going to come from commercial and civil launches. It's going to come from national security contracts and then space solutions is their kind of other revenue stream that they're pursuing. And I think you know, look, looking back on twenty twenty, it was certainly the year of a massive rush on electric vehicles. SPACs. You know, we've talked about that multiple times on the show. And in that kind of cadre of businesses, we have seen a couple that have just completely fallen flat, the likes of Lordstown Motors, for example, or Nikola. 2021 is certainly looking like it's going to be a year of the space spec. We've already had companies like Rocket Labs, Astra, another company called Black Sky, which I'm having a look at, is, is going to spec. I always keep in mind as investors, right, that what management is allowed to say to potential investors in SPACs is much, much looser than what they're allowed to do at an IPO. And so, you know, this company, he's had success previously with Galactic, certainly in terms of the stock price going up. Uh, just be wary before you invest in this business. Yeah. There's definitely kind of businesses I think you should absolutely use that kind of six month rule before you get investing in them and realize that space companies are very different. There's loads of different types of space companies. There's, it's They're not all the next SpaceX. They're not doing the same things as SpaceX or Blue Origin. So do your research, do your due diligence, and don't just be drawn into the the shiny word space. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a great investment. But as we spoke about before, Anne-Marie, you talked about on, on the Space Race podcast we've done, you know, the, the business of space haulage and how much money there is to be made there. Do you think Virgin Orbit is worth more research and a bit more of a digging into? 
Um, yeah, I, I took a look at kind of their haulage capabilities um, in comparison to SpaceX, and they are interesting. Like, they do have some advantages. The main one being, so Virgin Orbit is like Virgin Galactic in that it takes off like a plane. It's actually attached to a plane. A standard, like, ca- passenger plane flies up to average height, and then a rocket drops off it and launches up with the payload. And that actually gives quite a lot of flexibility in terms of where you can launch from, whereas SpaceX and Blue Origin need to launch from traditional launch pads you know like like uh uh, the kennedy center or something like that and so that has an advantage they also can carry about a thousand pounds which is less than spacex but places them right kind of in the middle of the payload which allows them to carry smaller satellites which actually hasn't really been something that spacex has been too focused on they've been focused on being able to carry in very large satellites that being said spacex has now realized that they could be making a lot more money if they begin kind of doing this ride sharing which we talked about on our last episode so they now are beginning to carry in smaller satellites so there's not really an advantage for them there and another thing that Virgin Orbit has is they can take off in much worse weather conditions, whereas SpaceX has actually had to cancel their first launches of 2021 because of adverse weather conditions. So Virgin Orbit, I think, is is betting on the idea that there are going to be so many satellites launching in the future, and they're going to be launching from all over the world, that surely like they will be able to capture some of the market share. And they do have some contracts with the U.S. military, with some European agencies, but I think SpaceX will continue to kind of be the preferred candidate within the United States. They have very large contracts with the United States military, and they also just have have been tested more. Like SpaceX has launched over 100 missions now at this point. Virgin yeah. Orbit has has launched three, and only two of them were successful. So <laughs> I think SpaceX is just a bit more tested, but I don't, I don't think that Virgin Orbit is necessarily going to be squeezed out of the market. As of right now, they're actually the cheapest option. You, they can launch for $12 million because they're attached to a plane. SpaceX's Falcon, which is huge and can carry a much larger payload, it's, it's $28 million for them to launch that. That being said, Musk is sure under his spaceship initiative that they can drive down costs by making everything reusable and he wants to get it as low as two million dollars to launch which would then make them more competitive and then i guess spacex has the advantage of they want to launch satellites for other companies so that they can carry up their own satellites for nothing for no cost and so i guess in that way you can always say oh spacex will eventually have recurring revenue if it can make enough money off of its own satellites, which are meant to be providing 5G connectivity. So it's definitely still up in the air. But I was going to finish this section by asking both of you, if you had to pick Galactic Orbit, SpaceX or Blue Origin to bring you to space, which did you pick? But Henry, I think you answered our question by <laughs> your your tone when you were talking about uh, Orbit's hit rate. Rory, who would you pick? I would, um, I mean, I, I love that it would be, <laughs> I can't imagine it's kind of a unique selling point for Virgin Galactic to say, guess what, guys, good news. SpaceX wouldn't launch in these weather conditions, but we can. Don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry about that. The one idea I did have is maybe they would maybe one day in the future, like they'll be able to attach rockets to like traditional commercial flights that are like going over the Atlantic or something like that. And then you'd be on a plane and there would just be like a a rocket attached to your plane. You'd be like, oh, eventually that'll drop off and go up into space. So like maybe that's some way that they can cut their prices, but I don't know. All I know is, all I know is Henri, Virgin Orbit would have got you out of New York in a hurricane, no problem. Uh, (laughs) They don't care. They don't care about a bit of wind. (laughs) 
<laughs> so that's it from this week's Stock Club. Remember, if you have any investing questions you want answered or elevator pitches you'd like to hear, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. You can find us on TikTok now at MyWallStreet or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're a member of the MyWallStreet community, you can also get in touch with us through the app. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you next week. Happy investing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.